Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. And today, in honor of a bit of a development, I wanted to talk about terraforming. And that is the art of converting otherwise lifeless planets, or planets that are hostile to life as we know it, into Earth analogs, or Earth-like environments that can support human habitation and terrestrial organisms of all kind. Now, for most people who have a working knowledge on the subject, this mainly comes up in reference to Mars. How could we convert Mars, create an Earth-like environment there so humans could live there someday comfortably and out in the open, where they no longer have to live in sealed biodomes, where they don't have to wear spacesuits on the surface, breathe bottled oxygen, where the temperatures are stable enough that all kinds of different environments and biomes, like we have here on Earth, can exist, and where standing bodies of water can once again exist. That particular subject has been explored extensively in science fiction and as a very serious field of scientific research for well over half a century. And considerable thoughts also been given to how we might terraform Venus, how we might take the runaway greenhouse effect that's there, stop it, reverse it, and thus create a world that is essentially an ocean paradise. And what's very interesting about both of these case studies there, Mars and Venus, it's about taking worlds that are at opposite ends of the habitability spectrum. One is far too hot, the atmosphere is far too dense, and on the other one is far too cold, and the atmosphere is far too thin. So all the processes that would be at work in converting these plants and making them more habitable, more amenable to Earth life forms, uh, they essentially mean applying all that we've learned about climates and climate modeling over the course of the past 50, 60 years of space exploration and all the climate modeling we've done using extraterrestrial environments to help us better understand Earth. So there is a, a huge sort of knowledge transfer process. What we do on these planets is based on what we know here about Earth. And what we know here about Earth was based largely on our studies of what happened to these planets, what happened to their environments over time. And ultimately, any work we do in these environments could someday help us to solve climate change and the situation here at home. So one of the oft-cited reasons for terraforming in the first place is that we could figure out how to conduct ecological engineering on a planet-wide scale, which may be the difference between Earth suffering from a runaway greenhouse effect or having its atmosphere just stripped away over time, and becoming a lifeless hunk of rock. 
which to the best of our knowledge, Venus and Mars currently are. Of course, in recent years, the subject has expanded considerably thanks to the discovery of extrasolar planets. And right now, NASA and every other space agency in the world, and countless nonprofits and research organizations, all those that have been contemplating and researching interstellar travel for, again, over half a century, they're considering how extrasolar planets might someday also be converted to Earth-like environments for the sake of human settlement and the sake of spreading human civilization to the stars. And, of course, the exact same considerations come up, like, is it worth it? How much uh, energy, time, resources would it take? What are the ethics of it? All of these things apply to whether we're talking about solar planets or extrasolar planets. And, as I said, the reason why I wanted to talk about this today is very soon, a rather important essay that I wrote on the subject is going to be published. And it's, it has to do with the possibility of terraforming rocky planets that orbit red dwarf stars. And it is part of an anthology, in fact, that was organized by NASA scientist and science fiction author Les Johnson and engineer and terraforming specialist Ken Roy. And it features some very distinguished science fiction writers and very distinguished scientists who contributed both short stories that talk about the prospect of human beings settling on these planets, and those are interspersed with essays that talk about the physical and the engineering requirements and the range of techniques and strategies that could actually see that happen someday. And my personal contribution was titled Under a Crimson Sun, and it was... Quite frankly, the longest paper I've ever written on the subject of terraforming or, well, anything post-academia, frankly. And at the risk of tooting my own horn, I have it on good authority, and I won't say from who, though, that it is one of the best papers on terraforming that this individual, this authority on the subject, has ever read. And I was incredibly honored by that. In fact, I was incredibly honored to, to have been invited to contribute. So, without further ado... I'd like to get into the subject of terraforming and exactly how it's evolved over the years, who the major contributors were to it in theory, how we are getting to a point where we can actually put some of the theory into practice, and where that might lead us someday. So much of what I'm going to tell you is contained within that aforementioned essay, and they were also the subject of a big series I, I wrote for Universe Today a few years ago, that looked at how we could terraform the various bodies of the solar system. And this consisted of what various scientists and scientific organizations have had to say about it over the years, actual scientific proposals of how this could be done, but also how the subject has been explored through science fiction and popular culture, and ultimately the various questions there, such as, how could this be done? Is it worth it? What are the ethics of it? So, having said all that, the first studies, the first attempts to address terraforming in a scientific way were performed in the 1960s, and Carl Sagan was one of several highly influential authors who began venturing ideas about how planets could be terraformed at this time, and he wrote in 1961 the first essay on how Venus could be terraformed, paper was titled The Planet Venus, and three years later, 
the aerospace engineer and futurist Dandrich M. Cole wrote a paper titled Islands in Space, The Challenge of Planetoids, The Pioneering Work, and this explored how Mars and other bodies could be terraformed. And by the 1970s, these would be followed by several more papers and actual studies that were commissioned by NASA on the subject. And by the 1980s and 1990s, there would be a body of literature that that basically represented all of these original proposals and subsequent expansions, criticisms, and renewed ideas based on further scientific findings, further missions. And since the turn of the century, what we've learned from renewed exploration efforts, these have led to a point where the subject of terraforming in our solar system, it's come down to a collection of proposals and steps for dealing with what are considered the two prime candidates, Mars and Venus, and how we might go about creating habitability there. And as I said before, it's really very interesting because Venus and Mars represent the two extremes when it comes to what you could find within a uh, star's habitable zone. Venus is at the inner edge. It has an atmosphere that is far too dense for life as we know it to survive. It uh, contains sulfuric acid rain clouds, it has a runaway greenhouse effect, so conditions on the surface. Not only is there enough air pressure there to crush your bones, but there are temperatures hot enough to melt lead. Meanwhile, conditions on Mars are the exact opposite, a wispy atmosphere that is unbreathable, and cryogenic conditions, which are enough to freeze any living being solid. And the temperature variations are also pretty extreme. At times, around the equator... Mars can actually get up to 30 degrees Celsius, so a very summery temperature, but that's just at the surface. In fact, a NASA JPL scientist, Kobe Boykins, uh, once said, even though the surface temperature of Mars during the summer at the equator, while it may be hot enough to warm your feet, a few inches above that, around your ankles, suddenly the temperature drops off to close to freezing, up to your knees, and you're into very, very cold temperatures there, enough to freeze your skin. By the time you reach your head, it's enough to freeze your body solid, and that's basically due to the fact that Mars has a very thin atmosphere, so it's very poor at retaining heat. So any surface temperatures that sound balmy, that's only true of uh, the soil and maybe an inch or so above the surface. So if you were to try and convert these two planets to something habitable, the strategies that you would need to employ, they are essentially opposite strategies, but in both cases, they're fully complementary, and they involve working with a planet's own natural cycles in order to create a terraforming effect. So in Venus's case, there are essentially three steps, and they're all complementary to each other. One, you need to stop the runaway greenhouse effect. Two, you need to thin the atmosphere so the air pressure is not so intense. And three, you need to convert it into something breathable. So Carl Sagan, as I said, he wrote uh, what is, by all accounts, the earliest paper on how to do this. And he suggested that genetically modified bacteria, photosynthetic organisms, they could be introduced to Venus's atmosphere and they would convert the carbon dioxide into oxygen gas and that would have the effect of lowering the temperature and starting a process where the planet could be made uh, more habitable. Unfortunately, scientists had discovered that, 
Well, Venus's atmosphere also contains dense clouds of sulfuric acid, so that makes that idea impractical. Also, the, the impact that solar wind has on the atmosphere would likely blow these bacteria out into space. So that didn't work, but the basic idea was, was still, it was foundational. So since that time, scientists have suggested modified approaches there, where you can either introduce a solar shade that would keep sunlight off the atmosphere, because Venus absorbs roughly twice the amount of uh, radiation that our atmosphere does. So if you were to do that, or place large reflective surfaces, such as floating airships, or some other type of solar mirror in the atmosphere around Venus, then this would have the effect of blocking or reflecting a lot of the radiation that would otherwise be absorbed back into space. You would gradually cool the atmosphere, and if you could reduce the temperature enough, then the vast clouds of carbon dioxide would begin to turn into dry ice, and they would begin to rain down like snow onto the surface. And you'd have to sequester that, you'd have to remove it, but but over time this would have the effect of thinning the atmosphere and reducing the temperatures further, at which point you could then conduct the next steps. A very similar idea is that you'd introduce carbonates into the atmosphere. Now, that could consist of dumping huge amounts of calcium and magnesium, which would then chemically react with the carbon dioxide to create carbonates, which you could then again sequester to thin the atmosphere out. But perhaps the best suggestion was introducing hydrogen gas in abundance to the atmosphere, which would then chemically react to create graphite, which again, you need to sequester, you got to get rid of it, because otherwise it will just completely impede your progress before long. But the main byproduct would be water. And this would then rain down on the surface in what's been termed the long rain after the Raid Bradbury short story. It would create a long rain, and this would result in oceans that would cover most of the surface. And scientists have actually been able to map out what that would look like based on the elevation maps that they've created of Venus over the years. And the interesting thing is that this this would have the effect of turning Venus into this very rainy, very lush, very wet planet, which is exactly what science fiction authors and scientists alike thought that it was prior to the space age. When they looked at Venus, they saw dense clouds that obscured the surface, and they assumed it was rain rather than a runaway greenhouse effect. Other ideas include harvesting comets, icy bodies and asteroids from the, the main belt in the outer solar system, and driving them into the surface at just the right angle, and this would have the effect of reducing all kinds of volatile elements into the air, which could help convert the atmosphere, but mainly the idea of these impacts is to get the planet rotating again, because Venus rotates very slowly and in the opposite direction of the other planets. This is uh, believed to have been due to uh, an impact at some time in the past, and because of this, one side of the planet it, it's absorbing radiation for extended periods of time, and it has the effect of creating an atmosphere that is uh, isothermal in nature, so there's very, very, very little temperature variation between day and night and different times of the year. But if you could speed it up to a 24-hour rotation cycle, not only would that be very good for future colonists who depend upon the day-night cycle for, you know, to for all of their biological and uh, diurnal rhythms, 
But it would also mean that the planet would start experiencing temperature variations, which could help freeze some of that carbon dioxide in the air. And while Sagan's original idea of using cyanobacteria to convert the atmosphere is not no longer considered feasible, cyanobacteria could be introduced along the way when the conditions were cool enough in the atmosphere to help the process along. So, so once you've selected one, or most likely, a combination of these strategies, you will have effectively reduced the density of Venus's atmosphere, lowered the temperatures, and yes, the atmosphere converted into something breathable, and everything else at that point is just uh, maintenance and ensuring that the process is completed, which most likely would include introducing uh, terrestrial life forms to the surface so that they can stabilize the environment and they can regulate temperatures and the water and create a, an oxygen and carbon cycle over time. You would need to introduce nitrogen into the atmosphere too as a buffer gas, but that, that too can be done by basically bringing in ammonia from the from comets and bodies in the outer solar system and dumping it in. And Venus would then become a planet where most of the real estate would be oceanfront. So a very, very beautiful world. Now, shifting over to Mars. Mars, at the other end of things, you need to create a greenhouse effect. You need to thicken the atmosphere and also there to convert it into something breathable. Again, they're all complementary. And once again, Carl Sagan was an early proponent. He wrote a paper in 1973 on the subject, and NASA followed three years later. And Christopher McKay, also from NASA, he followed up on this. And, and by 1984, James Lovelock, the famous environmental scientist and environmentalist who proposed the Gaia hypothesis, he wrote a book called The Greening of Mars, and this was actually a science fiction book and a fictional account, but it described exactly how Mars could be terraformed in the future and how people coming to it generations later, they were, they were having this whole history described to them. So these, and many, many subsequent proposals, they too laid out the various strategies that one could follow in order to terraform Mars, and the way to do this, the general consensus is, well, first of all, you need to melt the polar ice caps. That's one of the best ways to thicken the atmosphere right off the bat, as Carl Sagan recommended. Uh, another way to do that is to import either ammonia or CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, both of which are super greenhouse gases and or methane. You introduce these into the atmosphere, and the planet will immediately start absorbing more radiation, which will also have the effect of melting the polar ice caps, thickening the atmosphere up, and creating a greenhouse effect that will lead to further warming. There is also the idea of positioning solar mirrors in orbit, which could be aimed at the polar ice caps to melt them, or at the surface to trigger the release of carbon dioxide from all the minerals there and all the sand and soil on the surface, and drilling boreholes down into the planet, which would, again, trigger the release of carbon dioxide and also heat from the interior. So once you've done any or all of these things in combination, Mars's atmosphere will be significantly denser, uh, similarly, it has been suggested by NASA scientists that a magnetic shield could be built because Mars doesn't have a protective magnetic field as Earth does, and if you want to 
preserve the atmosphere that you've created there over time, it would require shielding or regular regular maintenance, more gases put into the atmosphere to compensate for what's been lost. And yes, this is coincidentally how Mars is thought to have lost its earlier atmosphere, which was warmer and wetter and there was liquid water on the surface because its intrinsic magnetic field died out. The planet's interior just cooled rapidly and geological activity that powers that magnetic field here on Earth, yeah, it ceased on Mars. So you employ all these strategies, alone or in combination, and you've now created a thicker atmosphere on Mars, but it's still toxic and unbreathable. So for that, that's when bringing in cyanobacteria and other organisms, as Carl Sagan had recommended for Venus, that strategy would work on Mars, They'd have to be hardened to deal with the higher levels of radiation and the temperatures. But it is generally believed that you could do that in such a way that lichens and fungi and cyanobacteria would be able to thrive on the surface and not just survive. And you place those out and they would then have the effect of converting atmospheric CO2 into oxygen gas They would also seed the soil with organic molecules, and from there, you can build up an entire ecosystem. You can then introduce grasses and shrubs and small plants and eventually trees. The atmosphere would continue to get more oxygen-dominated, and photosynthesis would continue, and the melting of the polar ice caps and the creation of a whole water cycle would mean precipitation, rain, clouds, and... Also, yes, it would be very good to important ammonia because in addition to being a greenhouse gas, it can be broken down by bacteria to create nitrogen. And that's a very important buffer gas in Earth's atmosphere. So eventually, a, an atmosphere that would be breathable would be created. And this process can be described as the greening of Mars, as Lovelock said. And it would eventually result in a planet that is habitable, livable, people can live outside of sealed domes. They can walk out onto the surface. And the atmosphere would have to be kept at a certain density so that the planet can remain warm enough and people can walk around outside without the need for additional oxygen packs. And over time, Mars, much like Venus, they would need some planetary maintenance, some ecological engineering, just tweak things a bit and ensure that on the one hand, Venus doesn't suffer another runaway greenhouse effect on account of how it's getting more radiation from the sun, and that Mars doesn't revert to a very, very cold, frigid, cryogenic place because it's not getting enough. Now, there have been some other very, very interesting ideas that have been suggested for paraterraforming, which means terraforming sections of a body rather than the whole thing. The Shell World concept is another, which in fact, the editor for the Ross 248 project, uh, one of the editors, Ken Roy, he's the one who came up with this concept, in fact. And this method involves enclosing a, a moon, an icy body, or a small planetoid that is otherwise devoid of life, doesn't have uh, habitable conditions, doesn't even have an atmosphere necessarily on its surface. You enclose it, and then you start to introduce uh, ecological changes. You increase the temperature. You're committed to ecological engineering, once again, on a massive scale, but in a way that is much more advanced. 
And over time, you could create a habitable planet inside this shell and then remove the shell and it's able to maintain its atmosphere and maintain habitability on its own. And these ideas, they have been extended to bodies in the outer solar system and also to exoplanets. So at present, we not only have a huge body of literature that deals with how we could make planets like Venus and Mars and exoplanets that have similar conditions habitable, but we could also turn icy moons and otherwise airless bodies like the moon and Mercury and create habitable centers on them or possibly even create a habitable body out of them. And in the age of exoplanet studies, where literally thousands of exoplanets are now available for study and characterization, our focus has become shifted outward. And this really brings me to the meat of the Ross 248 project, which examines how planets around red dwarf stars could be made habitable. And the reason why this is significant is because, on the one hand, Red dwarf stars are the most common type of star in the universe. They make up 75 to 80% of stars in every galaxy. And they also, based on, and based on much of the exoplanet research that's taken place uh, since the, the late 2000s, scientists have found that red dwarf planets seem very, very good at creating Earth-sized rocky planets around them. And uh, case in point, the closest exoplanet to our solar system is Proxima b. It orbits the red dwarf star Proxima Centauri, roughly four and a quarter light years away from us. It's one of several planets that have now been confirmed in that system. There are three. However, its discovery and announcement in 2016, it triggered a great deal of enthusiasm because scientists had confirmed that it orbits within its star's habitable zone. So not only is it the closest exoplanet to us, but it is quite possibly one of the best places, one of the most likeliest places for finding life, or at least conditions that are suitable to life. But there are many, many unanswered questions about just how habitable these planets could be over time, because red dwarf stars are prone to flaring, they mainly do it from their poles, which would not have any real effect on planets orbiting in their habitable zones. But at the same time, because red dwarfs are much smaller and cooler than stars like our sun, any planet that's orbiting within its habitable zone is orbiting very close. So that essentially means that the planet's going to be tidally locked, where one side is facing towards its sun constantly, or is facing towards its sun for very long and extended periods of time, like Mercury does with our sun. So this means that with one side facing the sun, it's going to be getting perhaps too much radiation, whereas the other side's not going to be getting nearly enough. So there are a lot of questions and challenges about whether or not life really could emerge on a planet like that, or the planet doesn't necessarily have the conditions that would allow for life to emerge there, but they do have the necessary conditions so that life could take root there if it were transplanted. And with the right tweaks, that it could remain there, thrive, survive, and live in a continuously self-sustaining habitable environment. 
So that was the subject of my contribution to the story, which explored how ecological engineers and terraformers could convert these planets to something livable, depending upon how close they were to their star, how warm, how cold, what the conditions of their atmosphere were. And I can honestly say it was one of the most intriguing, interesting, and fun things to write. While the book is not going to be available until next year, it is available for pre-order, and we are now at the point, the publishers, the editors, we are now at the point where the book has been signed, sealed, and delivered, fully written, and all the I's have been dotted and T's have been crossed. And as I said, it's available for pre-order now through Barnes & Noble and Simon & Schuster, the links of which are provided below, and the cover art, which is also provided below. And I encourage people to check it out, because, in addition to yours truly, there are short stories and essays that have been contributed by some of the biggest names in the industry, whether we're talking about science fiction writing or scientific research. And it was an absolute honor to work with Les Johnson and Ken Roy, two highly influential seasoned professionals who are the top of their field and have uh, been publishing anthologies like this for some time. Les Johnson in particular, he's been publishing anthologies like this for some time. His, the previous anthology was called Going Interstellar, and it included scientific essays and science fiction short stories about interstellar journeys and settling on other planets, uh, with the focus on, really, the getting there part. This latest volume focuses on the living there part. How do we live on what are statistically the most common types of exoplanets in our galaxy. And there will be more news on this front as we get closer to the date of publication. And I hope to discuss terraforming more as, as we get closer to that date as well. It is not only a subject of great interest, but it's one that I've spent years studying now, which is how I, I was invited to this collaboration in the first place. I've written extensively about the potential for terraforming, how it could be done, and, in some respects, why it needs to be to ensure humanity's survival, its growth, and its expansion, not just in terms of population, but also in terms of its awareness. To quote a colleague and friend, Dr. Sian Proctor, who said that solving for space solves for Earth, and through the process of learning how to live sustainably on other planets, we're going to learn how to live sustainably here on Earth as well. And while there are many people who say that going out into space and trying to settle other planets there, that steals focus away from Earth and Earth's problems, I, I strongly disagree. Quite frankly, I don't see any other scenario in which humanity is going to be able to live sustainably here on Earth in terms of its need for resources. Space resources are not only extremely abundant, but shifting our industrial and manufacturing burdens out into space that would have wonderful ecological consequences for here on Earth, and also shifting the population burden off into space, same benefit. And above all, what we learn in the process of trying to settle in space without that research, where we leverage all the knowledge we have about Earth systems and bioregenerative systems, without that happening out in space where there's no margin for error, we are not going to develop the strategies we need to prevent ecological collapse here at Earth. Just don't see that there's any other way. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I am Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. Stories from Space.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space Podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.